than Hal Sutton. All right, before I get to my next guest, Bob Friend, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Golf Pride. Folks, did you know that Golf Pride is your favorite team while also using the number one grip in golf? Your team, your grip, MCC Hybrid Grips, the number one grip series worldwide, features an exclusive brushed cotton cord in the upper hand for all-weather performance with a premium rubber in the lower hand for added feel. The new MCC Team Series is available in a variety of new color combinations that is going to let you rep your favorite team when you're out there on the golf course. And the grips are available in standard and midsize. Go online to check it out for yourself and see how you can rep your team while you're out there playing the game. Go on to golfpride.com. All right, now, folks, back, and I'm honored to say this, in making his 15th appearance with me is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Bob Friend Jr., you know, folks, you hear people say he or she is an all-timer. But you know what? Bob Friend is an all-timer on this show. He first joined me all the way back in April of 2014 on episode number three of the show. Now, why is that important? Well, he agreed to come on a show he never heard of with a guy he never heard of. Now, that's a pretty great thing to do for a guy who's launching his, his first podcast. Now, 14 shows later, He's still coming back on, which I couldn't be more grateful for. When you want to know about Bob Friend, and, and like I say, you, you just heard me talk about the individual. Let me talk about the guy that played on the golf course. First of all, he's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He played his college golf at LSU, where he teamed with David Toms and the rest of his teammates. They won the 86 SEC championship. Bob had 11 career top 10 finishes while he was in college. He won the Pennsylvania State Championship in back-to-back years in 84 and 85. He turned pro in 87, played on the Corn Ferry, PGA, and Champions Tours. He had five top 10 finishes his rookie year on the Corn Ferry Tour, including a second-place finish at the El Paso Open. Got his first win in 1991 at the Fort Wayne Open. He had five top 10 finishes in 94, three more in 97. In all, he's finished in the top 10 27 times. And for baseball fans out there, you're going to remember his father, Bob Friend Sr., Pitched in the major leagues from 1951 to 1966, mostly with the Pittsburgh Pirates and was a key member of their 1960 World Championship team that beat the New York Yankees. Bob was also named the, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society Man of the Year last year for the amount of money he was able to raise for that charity. And like I said, I couldn't be more honored. He's back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, how are you, my friend? Thanks for coming back on the show. Well, Chris, I'm always delighted to be with you, and uh, I'm just a little bit bummed out that, uh, my goodness, you got me following Hal Sutton. I mean, that uh, that hurts my feelings. <laughs> it should. Be. You're you a follow, player in your you own race. That? You don't you don't back up to how anybody. You follow that. Be the right club today. How do I follow that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly had a lot of great moments out on the tour, and we're going to talk about some of them here in a minute, but. Bob, I want to start um, with your memories of playing at the Players' Championship. You played in that golf tournament back in 99, and I tell you what, if it wasn't for a tough third round, you might have won the darn thing. Your final round 70 well, was the second-best final round, and, you know, take that take that third round out, Bob. You're only two shots behind well, it, David Duvall, so. That's true, but if, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, every day would be Christmas. You know, it was, uh, it was, you know, that was the 99. And, uh, you know, the fact is that I was, I was really, really struggling with my ball strike most of the year. Um, I had made some changes towards the end of, of 1998. And, you know, I just, I really just wasn't hitting the ball well. I played my Tuesday practice and I was Paul Azinger. He and I both worked with John Redmond. 
Uh, a longtime teacher of Paul and myself and a number of other guys out there on tour. And I just quite, I couldn't quite get it figured out. And so I ended up, uh, at the players, I shot 74, uh, the first round, uh, which was two over par. And then on the, uh, the second round, I actually made a hole in one on the eighth hole there. I think they had one before wow. there this week. Um, made a hole in one there with, from 220. With a four, I ended up shooting 69 and got myself way up there. Actually, I was paired with Lee Westwood on Saturday. And then, uh, you know, the winds came, you know, and, and what will happen at TPC Stadium is that, uh, the golf course has a tendency to expose you. Uh, it is a wonderful test of golf. For those of your listeners that haven't played it, I strongly urge them to go down there and play it or go up there and play it, depending on where they live. Um, it is a tremendous test of golf, but the wind blew about 25 miles an hour on Saturday. And the truth be told, I shot 87. Uh, there are about 12, 12, 15 guys that did not break 80. Uh, and I, you know, somebody had to be the high man of the day. And I was, I don't know if I want to say I was proud to take that mantle, but I was the high man of the day. And, um, you know, I just, after I shot, obviously it was disappointing and discouraging, but I just had not hit the ball very well. And uh, I went out on Sunday, and uh, I made a determination uh, that I was not going to finish last in the golf tournament. I went off on Sunday. I was uh, I was last. I was I was in I was in last place going into Sunday, and I went off in a onesome. The PGA Tour uh, allows you to either play by yourself with a walking score, or you can play with a marker. And most guys, such as myself, you want to play with. You're just going to play by yourself and you know, have a walking score go around with you and, uh, ended up shooting 70, which was two under par. And it was the, uh, it was the second low round of the day. Only Fred couples beat me that day. And I did not finish, uh, in last place. I think I finished like 52nd or something like that, but it was, you know, it was one of those things where, um, you know, it was embarrassing, but you know, at the end of the day too, I've, I've never no carded in a tournament in my entire life. And, uh, you know, as, as embarrassed as I was, I actually still, there were a couple guys down there from the Pittsburgh Papers, Jerry Dulac and Mike Duterich, who were from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and the Pittsburgh Tribune Review at the time. When I came out of the scoring tent, uh, you know, they just kind of looked at me and they were staring at their shoes. I just walked right up to them and said, what do you guys want to know? And so, you know, you have to take the good with the bad. Um, but it was, a, it was a, it was a pleasure to be out there. It was a pleasure to play. Just wish I would have played a little bit better, uh, on Saturday, but it was, uh, you know, I, if I, if I had a, you know, my career, if I go and take a look at it, I was very blessed. I should have won on the PJ tour. I lost in the sudden death playoff of the Bell Canadian Open to Billy Andre in 98. Um, but you know, I just, if you go back and take a look at it, I'm 57 years old now, just to think about some of the friendships that I've made through the years and all the, all the tremendous players, uh, that I played with. Uh, in my career, I mean, literally, you sit there and you you look at some of the names that I've played with, including Hal Sutton. I actually played with Hal in a practice round in the 1984 U.S. Open on Monday at uh, Wingfoot. When I was 20 years old, I qualified for the U.S. Open. I actually played my Monday practice round with Hal, and uh, you know, I've known Hal for years. Uh, obviously, went to LSU, and David Toms and I were good friends. And um, you know, Hal is just uh, it's, you know, he's not only is he a legend in the game of golf is a legend in Louisiana, and he's just one of the best gentlemen you'll ever meet. I want to get your thoughts as a guy that uh, that played in the golf tournament. Could, could you have ever imagined a time 
when a guy would stand on the sixth tee and blast it across the lake, talking about the Arnold Palmer Invitational, talking about Bay Hill. Talk about Bryson DeChambeau and his tee shot on six. He pulls that ball a little bit further left. Maybe it's a little bit higher. He, he may be putting for double eagle. No, what are it, your it, thoughts it, about what you saw? Well, I mean, obviously, number one, I mean, this is the guy is, you know, he is transforming. He's transformed himself. And what I what I see and I listen to the interview with Hal and Hal is exactly right. What's what's going to happen to some very, very good accomplished players is that a lot of guys are going to start chasing the maximum distance, uh, you know, to, to try to get to where Bryson DeChambeau is. And the fact is, they just they can't all do it. Um, I'll give you a great example. You know, Ian Baker Finch, because or because both of our names, because both of our names, uh, you know, begin with the letter F, our lockers are very close to each other. And so Ian and myself actually became very, very close friends, uh, you know, through the years just because we were always with each other in, you know, in a similar locker. And so finally, uh, you know, one year, actually in 98, I was out putting uh, at Westchester and Ian was headed up to the broadcast booth. And, uh, you know, he stopped by and he watched me get some putting. I had missed a cut that week and he just, he came in and, um, you know, he just said, Hey, let me, you know, look what you're doing with the putting. And we started talking. I just said, look, I got to ask you something. So what, what happened to you? Now, if, if you're, if your listeners are familiar, I mean, Ian Baker Finch won the 1991 Open Championship and he was one of the rising stars in the world of golf. Good looking guy, wonderful guy, but his forte was that he could drive the golf ball straighter than you could point, and he was a great putter. And so what what he described to me is exactly what I see that's happening, and I hope it doesn't happen to Rory McIlroy. And he said, you know, he said, this is what happened. He said, you know, he said, I win the Open Championship, and he said, all of a sudden I am now getting the premier pairings in golf. He said, I'm paired with Greg Norman. I'm paired with Nick Price. I'm paired with John Daly. I'm paired with Fred Couples. I'm paired with all of these guys, and they're all hitting it. 40 yards by me. Now, what you understand back in the early 90s, 40 yards by another player on the PGA Tour is huge because you didn't have the Pro V1 golf ball, and the Pro V1 golf ball is designed that if you have a swing speed north of 112 miles an hour, you pick up explosive distance. Uh, if your swing speed is 108, you pick up a little bit of distance. Well, back in the 90s, you know, most of us are playing the Tour Bellata golf ball, uh, which, you know, it basically, if you hit the ball a long way, the ball went a long way, and if it didn't, it didn't. Um, and so what he said, he said, I, I was, he said, these guys are hitting the ball 30, 40 yards by me, and he says, I went on a search for more distance. And he said, what happened was, he said, I lost, I lost my golf swing. He said, I, I lost my, how made a great comment, I lost my identity. And he said, I, I, you know, tried to get the ball, the club had deeper in my backswing plane, more rotary to pick up more power. And then I not only did I not pick up more power, I started hitting the ball all over the place. And then when I went back, looked for my old swing, he said, I basically lost all my confidence. And he'd be the first one to tell you that if he goes and he plays with his mates, as he calls them, because he's an Aussie, if I go and I play with my mates, I'm going to shoot 65. He said, as soon as I hear these words, now on the tee, Ian Baker Finch, he says, I, I, he said, I can't drive it in the ocean at high tide. He said, I lost all my confidence and then fear crept in. What I would hate to see, because Bryson is, Bryson is his own player. Um, I would hate to see a young guy like, like Roy McElroy 
going to do and make change, dramatic changes to his golf swing to try to pick up that next, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 yards to a guy that's already immensely long. And then next thing you know, he loses it, fades away, and we never hear from him again. Um, I think that what Bryson's doing, I think that he is, he's transformed his body and, uh, you know, he's a very, obviously a very bright guy. And look, he's just, this is, this is the nature of the game right now. Um, you know, you still have to be able to putt the ball. You still have to pitch and chip the ball. But the fact is, is that you, you get out there and if you can drive it 375 yards, why would you not try to do that on every single hole? And that's, that's kind of where we are. The good news is it's exciting. The fans love it. It's great for television, but I don't necessarily know if it's in the long run, if it's great for the game. I think that, uh, I think that the ball needs to, I think the need, USGA needs to, uh, take a serious look at increasing the spin rate of the golf ball to try to reel in and reel back the distance a little bit. I think that uh, I don't know if there's a bifurcation of the rules or whatnot, but I think if you take a look at the spin rate, on the golf ball, I don't think I think that you can continue to have the same ball that the amateurs play, that the professionals play, and it's not going to make that much of a difference to the amateurs. But the guys with the higher swing speeds, the, the harder you hit a golf ball, with the higher spin rate, the, the higher the ball goes, the more the ball will curve. And so for the amateurs, I don't think that solution would really affect them too much. But I think that uh, you know when you when you see these guys driving the ball 345, 375 yards long. It kind of makes some of these golf courses obsolete. Tom, did you ever get caught up in the in the thought of trying to you know chase distance? Was that ever something that you know you had to deal with? And and if not, I mean, how did you block that out and just you know be Bob Friend? Well, I did. I actually did. You know, when I uh, I, I played uh, five years on the PGA Tour in ninety. Two and ninety three, the ninety eight, ninety nine, and two thousand. I lost my card in two thousand, and uh, I was um, fully exempt on the Corn Ferry Tour for two thousand one. And Brett Quigley, who you know uh, he he won in Morocco last year on PGA Tour Champions in twenty twenty, is my close friend. We did a lot. We played a lot of practice rounds together. He, we were running mates and. Uh, Brett was conditionally exempt on the PGA Tour in 2001, and we played together in a tournament in Arkansas and a, a big golf course called Diamante. And so I was there, and I'd started working with Jim Suddy at the time. And I was really worrying. I was really working on being able to shape the ball from left to right, being, being better at moving the ball from left to right. It really wasn't so much distance as it was trying to, as it was trying to, you know, work on my shape. Because I was not a good fader of the golf ball, so I, I always did everything a little bit from right to left. And so I felt that in order to get better, I needed to be able to work the ball both ways. And so uh, Brett and I played a practice run together in Arkansas. Now the thing is, my swing speed at my at my peak or my prime was about 108 miles an hour. I mean, obviously there's a lot of people that would kill for that, but PGA PGA's tour standards, it is, you know, that that's average or maybe a little bit below average. And so I go out there and I'm playing with Brett. And this is when the Pro V1 ball had just come out. And Brett always hit the ball about 10 yards past me. And we get out there and he's hitting the ball 30, 40 yards past me. And I am just, I'm standing on him. I mean, I cannot, I'm killing it. And I'm hitting it solidly. And he's still, he is still hitting the ball 30, 40 yards by me. And so basically what it was, it's basically, as I said, if you have a swing speed, if you have a swing speed that is north of 112 miles an hour, 
uh, you're going to get explosive distance. Well, mine was 108. Brett's was around 115. And so Hensi picked up the explosive distance. So I actually, for that year, I, I, you know, worked on trying to hit the ball longer. Then finally, I just like, you know what? This is not me. You know, my, my forte is I'm a great wedge player. I'm a great putter and I drive the ball straighter than you could point. And I kind of lost that a little bit. Um, and then I, I ended up getting it back later, uh, in 2003, but that really, you know, by that time I had kind of lost the so-called fire. I just didn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to go out there and hit balls on the rock pile for six to eight hours a day. I had three kids and wasn't playing well. And so at that time I decided at the age of 40 that I was, you know, going to do other things, which is what I did. Um, but I can tell you, I, I, I'm very concerned about what I read with Rory. And what I saw with his interviews regarding what he did this past week at the players, just because I would hate to see such a talent as that who, who hit the ball so long um, that, you know, he goes and he's looking for this explosive, super long distance. And, you know, we ended up we ended up we, we lose something that is really special because I think he's a really special player. And uh, I would hate to see that. I would hate to see that happen. But it's very easy. It's very easy. To, uh, to get caught up in the distance because that's all anybody's talking about. But I think what Hal said is very, very, uh, it, it's very, very on the mark. Um, you have to be who you are. And I think that, uh, a lot of these players going after this explosive distance, trying to be Bryson DeChampeau, I just don't think it's going to work out well for them. Bob, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit to uh, another memory for you. And you recently posted uh, a picture of you playing with Mr. Palmer and seven and Seve. And what was the Bay Hill Invitational at the time? We know it's the Arnold Palmer Invitational now. And when I look back at that tournament, you played better than both of them. I bet no one in the gallery noticed because everyone was focused on getting a glimpse of those two legends. But what was it like for you playing in between those two guys? Well, I mean, it was, I had played, I had known Arnold, uh, since I was a young kid. My dad, obviously related, you know, related to my father's baseball career. So he and Arnold, obviously professional athletes at the pinnacle of their sport, basically about the same time. Um, so I had known Arnold since I was a kid and I had played my 1994 practice round at Oakmont with him on Monday. Um, so I went out on Tuesday of the Bay Hill Invitational. Uh, with actually playing with Paul Asner again, because John Redden was following us around and, you know, working with both of us, working on little pitches and, and working on trajectories. And we get done playing. And so, uh, you know, we go, Paul and I, we go into the players dining area there at Bay Hill. And then uh, it's about 1231 o'clock and the, the rules officials go and they put a stack of, you know, tea, uh, tea sheets down on each of the tables and we pick one up and we're looking and Zinger looks and says, Oh my gosh, friendly, you've got, the, you've got the king and Seve this week. And I'm like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me! Now I can tell you, you know, I was, I wasn't even, I wasn't even an afterthought when you compare those two guys. But I know that Mr. Palmer liked me. We're both, you know, Pittsburgh guys, Lake Trobe guys, Western Pennsylvania guys, and uh, I knew that that was him, you know, saying, hey, I want to play with Bobby Friend, and wouldn't it be fun if we had Seve in there too? So I, I know that he had a hand in. Um, it was awesome. I mean, again, that's that's one of the things that you talk about. A career that, now, like I said, I would have liked to have won on the PGA Tour. That's one of the things that, it, to believe me, it honestly, it still bothers me. Um, you know, it still bothers really? me. Really? I felt that I should. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, still bothers me. 
Um, I think that you sit there and you, you give your life to it and you work as hard as I did. Um, and then, you know, your careers come to an end. And it's not like I'm you know sitting here crying in my soup uh, about a career. It, it was a nice career. I had a blast, a lot of great memories, a lot of great friends. But I just, if I had a regret, uh, I know that I had enough game to win out there. And I should have. Uh, Canadian Open was my best opportunity, but I ended up, you know, with, with three or four top 10 finishes. I had led uh, the New England Classic my rookie year after one round, shot 64 there, and I had led the Byron, uh, the Byron Nelson after the first round, shot 63 the first round there, um, you know, and had played well at the Buick Southern Challenge, was tied to the lead back in my rookie year, 1992, at, at, at Callaway Garden. So I had opportunities. I should have won. Um, but you know, you get out there and you know, you're paired with Arnold Palmer and Sylvia Ballesteros and it is just, it's absolutely, you know, amazing. I mean, Arnold is just every, everything that you hear about him is exactly what he is. He's a man's man, uh, looks you in the eye, gives you a firm handshake and, and treated everybody with respect out there. Uh, you know, his game was, his game was such where at the time he was 69 years old, but he hit everything at every single flag. And no matter what club, no matter where the whole location was cut. And uh, I remember, you know, I, I didn't, when I was on tour, I didn't, I never drank when I was on the road. I'm, a, you know, I'm from Pittsburgh. So, you know, we drink beer and I'd have, I'd, I'd be on the road for three or four weeks and come back and relax, go to some pirate games with some friends. We'd have some beers at the ball game, but you know, nothing, nothing crazy. Uh, but when I was on tour, when I was on the road, I never drank. And so we played late on Thursday. I play late in the evening and we get done and, uh, we finish, and Arnold in the scoring tent slaps me in the back, looks me in the eye, and he says, what do you say we go in and get a couple of rolling rocks? Well, normally, my, my routine would be to head to the range and hit, hit, you know, maybe a bucket of balls or so and just kind of warm down and then go to the hotel and quick dinner, shower, and get ready for the early tea time the next day. Well, if Arnold, Arnold Palmer asked you to have a beer. You have a beer. So I went in there. We had a beer, shared a rolling rock, and had a nice evening and said goodbye. The next morning on Friday, uh, you know, we went out, we played, we played the, uh, we played the back nine first. So we finished on number nine and we got done on number nine and, you know, Arnold again slapped me on the back and here it is. And now it's like around one o'clock in the afternoon. And he says, you know, let's, let's go get a rolling rock. And of course, I'm not going <laughs> to turn down Arnold Palmer said, sure. So we went in there and we were having our rolling rock and the two things I'll never forget, you know, we were sitting there and, and I was always brought up by my dad to take your hat off when you come indoors. Arnold Palmer was a huge, huge proponent of ha- gentlemen have to have their hats off when they come inside. And so we're sitting there, we were at the bar there in the men's locker room, you know, we're players only, and Curtis, who is the uh, locker room attendant, served us a couple of rolling rocks. And as we're sitting there talking and having our beer, a couple guys walk in with a hat, and Arnold looks at me and he just said, boy, I tell you what. He said, these guys, he said, I don't care who your sponsor is, and I don't care, but you've got to take your hat off when you come indoors. And I said, yeah, you know, you know, Mr. Palmer, I agree. I said, I, I got to ask you something. I said, you know, I know you didn't play as well as you wanted to. I said, but I noticed, I said, you hit everything at every single flagstick, no matter where the hole was cut, no matter what club you had. I said, it had in your hand. I said, is that how you played in your prime? He says, yeah. He said, absolutely. He says, I could not, he said, I could not get my eye off of that hole. He said, I didn't, it just, to me, he said, I just could not get myself game away from it. He said, look, he said, I won seven major championships playing that way. And he said, I won over 60 tournaments on the PGA Tour. And then he winked at me, he said, you know, had I played like our good friend from Ohio, 
a little more conservatively, especially in those majors. I probably would have won three or four more of them. He said, but that just wasn't my style. And, uh, you know, I'll take that with me forever. I mean, just to sit there and, and talk to, you know, the greatest name in the history of the game of golf and the greatest style in the game of golf and just, uh, you know, it was a special few days. And then with Seve, Seve was, you know, his game, he was struggling with his game, was really loose with the driver, but he hit some amazing short game shots. I'll never forget the, the shot on the 10th grain. Uh, early in the morning, the second round, he had buried it. It was a, it was a, it was a fried egg in the green side bunker left. The pin was cut four paces on and four paces from the left. And Arnold and I are standing right there next to each other watching Seve hit the shot. Now Seve only used one sandwich. He had a 56 degree sandwich. He didn't have a 60, he didn't have a 64. He had a pitching wedge and he had a 56 degree sandwich in his bag. And he gets in there and he hits this shot and the sand explodes. The ball pops out of a buried lie. And the ball took one hop and stopped. And Arnold just, just kind of jerked and looked at me. He said, have you ever seen anything like that? I said, I haven't. How about you? I said, I've never seen that. You know, so I got to see, I got to, I was paired with the greatest name in the history of the game of golf. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the greatest names in the history of the game of golf, certainly in Europe, they would say that he is. And, um, you know, it was, it was just an amazing, amazing experience, Chris. And speaking of Seve, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe he used a reverse K setup on the tee, which is something I've tried to adopt in my setup and my drives. Did, did you see that? Was that the way he was set up on his driver? And do you think oh, that that's, you know, something we should always I, do? Absolutely. I think that, uh, you're talking in golf, golf instruction. I think that the, I, I don't think, I know for a fact that the way you swing the golf club is built around grip, posture, ball position, alignment. Those four things alone are going to dictate how you swing the golf club. And the reverse K posture, let's just say for, you know, you might have, you have some left handers in your, in your audience listening. Reverse K for a right-handed player is where you take, you address the golf ball and you're, you bump your hip towards the target. It's not a weight transfer. It's your hip is, your hip is moved about two inches. Your, your hip is moved about two inches towards the target. By doing that, your left leg is straight and your right leg and your upper torso make what looks like what's called a reverse K is what you referred to. So by bumping your hip towards the target, by about an inch or two. Again, you won't, you want to take two aspirin. You don't want to take the whole bottle. By bumping your hip slightly towards the target, what that does is that tilts your spine slightly towards your right leg. And so then what you're able to do from that position, instead of, uh, instead of a weight transfer, instead of swaying off the golf ball to try get behind the golf ball, you, all you literally are doing with that spine tilted slightly back towards your right leg, is you just coil and your upper body's automatically turned over your right leg. What a lot of amateurs have a problem with is that when they have neutral hips, your spine is straight up and straight down, and it is impossible for you to turn behind the golf ball. So most players who have neutral hips at a dress will do one of two things. They will either do a what is a lot of people just in, in layman's terms called a reverse pivot, where they turn on the ball, and then when they change direction, their weight automatically goes backwards, and they finish on the right leg. Or when they address the golf ball with neutral hips, the first move that they do is that they sway back to the right side to try to load into the right side and turn behind the golf ball, both of which are terrible. So the reverse K, I, I'm a, other than wedges, I'm a huge proponent of the reverse K in every single full shot that you have because it allows you 
simply to rotate around your spine and you're automatically into your right side. Bob, one more before I let you go. As a weekend hacker, but one of the things I think we do to ourselves, probably because of ego, is when we're going to go out and play, we look at and we say, well, you know what? I, I can play from the blue tees. And then we hack it around and we, you know, and we shoot what we shoot, which is way more than what we should. Um, instead of trying to make the game more fun by playing a more appropriate tee, whatever it is, white tee, the gold tee, whatever. You notice for, for amateurs like me, that we do ourselves a disservice and we make the game harder than it should be because we can't, we can't sort of get over ourselves, but with, with which tee we should be hitting from. Absolutely. You should play the, you should play the forward tees. I mean, look, I'm 57 and I'm, I'm very blessed and a longtime member at Oakmont. I, I have not played championship tees at Oakmont in probably 10 years. I have no desire to go back to get my brains beaten in. Uh, you know, the golf course itself is, is hard enough as it is. So I play from the men's tees, which at Oakmont's about 6,600 yards long. There's nothing wrong. This is why you have multiple sets of tees. One of the things that I did when I was on tour with Bob Rotella, and, and I work with Bob from 92 and up until this day, I can still give him a call anytime and talk to him. Uh, don't have much use for it right now with, with real estate and a, a realist, my real estate career. Uh, but one of the things that Bob Rotel and I always spoke about was because of the difficulty of Oakmont, um, it's very rare that you go out there and, you know, tee it up and shoot 62 or 63 or 64. And so what Rotella would ask me to do is during my weeks off when I was not playing is I would take three days off and I would relax. I wouldn't do anything. I would go to a pirate game. I'd relax. I'd just hang out, hang out in the yard, hang out with my kids, whatever. And then I the last four days of a week off. I would get back into it and I would start practicing. But one of the things that Rotella always asked me to do, he said, the golf course is too damn hard. He said, you're never going to get used to making a lot of birdies when you play there. He said, so I want you to play when you are home at least one round from the ladies' tees. I'm like, you got to be kidding. He said, no. He said, I want you to get up there and I want you to play from the ladies' tees. And I want you to just get used to making birdies and, and, and driving the ball long and knocking it on par fives and two and, and having wedges in your hand all day long. He said, I want you to play at least one round every time you're home from the ladies tee. The point is, the point is that the game is meant to be fun. It's meant to be fun. And I think that you definitely do yourself a disservice by going back and beating your brains in. By the back tees. In the first place, the average amateur drives the ball about 220 yards. Uh, how many times have you heard somebody say, oh, yeah, I know a guy hit the 300. I'm like, uh, no, you really don't. You know somebody that might hit it 260, but no, you don't know anybody hits it 300 yards. So the, the, the point is that you, you, know, you want to have maximum enjoyment of the game. There's nothing wrong with going out there and playing a golf course at 6,000 yards and having short irons in it and making a few birdies. And shooting 72 and shooting 75 and breaking 80 for the first time. There's no embarrassment about that. You know, the game is supposed to be supposed to be played. Don't beat your brains in. Go play the appropriate tees. Again, the guys on tour, believe me, you know, you don't see a whole lot of guys on the Champions Tour when they're home and like these guys might be at Whisper Rock. They might be at Bay Hill or whatnot. You don't see the John Cooks uh, going back there all the way back. Playing. They play their appropriate tees. And these were some of the best players in the world. Guarantee if you had asked Hal Sutton the same thing, Hal's not going back and playing 7,500 yards. Hal's probably playing about 6,800 yards, which is, again, that's the appropriate tee for his age, my age, and for the amateurs listening, 
the appropriate tee for you is, is likely, you know, 62, 6,300 yards long. There's nothing wrong with that. Bob, before I let you go, give me an update on, uh, you know, how's your, your wonderful wife, Claire, and your kids? Everybody is good. Yeah, we, uh, Claire and I just celebrated. We've been married about a year and a half now. She's still putting up with me. Very patient woman. And, uh, my oldest son, Charlie, is out in Montana and he's working for a company called Granite Equity Partners. My daughter, Libby, is in Denver and she's teaching second grade. And my youngest is finishing his final year at uh, Jefferson State Community College down in Alabama. He's playing uh, on a golf scholarship down there. It's a junior college. And his coach is actually Mike Bracken. And Mike actually caddied for Freddie Funk on the Champions Tour. And Mike is actually currently caddying for Scott Perplank. So he's a men's golf coach there. Uh, like three quarters of the time and the other quarter of the time he actually caddies out on the champions tour. So he's, uh, Andrew's doing well. He's loaded with talent and he's getting there. So it's one of those things where everybody matures at different levels, different times. And Andrew's going to be a late bloomer, but he's, uh, if I had the talent that he has, uh, has, I'd probably would have made 50 million on tour. <laughs> ah, that's fantastic. Good for all of them. Bob, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing now and uh, follow you, whether it's it's online or it's on social media. Well, I actually got off of Twitter. I actually had a I actually got I got annoyed with the quote unquote, the uh, the impingement of free speech. I might go back. But right now, I just I got a little aggravated with everybody being censored and everything else. So I thought, you know what? That's not really for me. But uh, I I. I don't do much. Of the, well, I tell you what I do. I, if you go on the Facebook, I do a lot of things for real estate. I'm the manager for the Howard Hanna office in Squirrel Hill. Howard Hanna is the third largest real estate company in the United States. And uh, we're in 11 states and we're the third largest. So wherever we go, we control the market. Uh, it's a wonderful company. It's what's called a fully stacked real estate company where we have our own real estate agents to buy and sell properties. Uh, we have our own mortgage company, we have our own insurance company, and we have our own title and settlement company. So Howard Hanna Real Estate and uh, Squirrel Hill Office. And if you venture on the Facebook every now and then, you'll you'll see me doing recruiting videos, talking about real estate, and talking about listings and sales. Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for coming back for a 15th time tonight. Uh, you're an all-timer with me, my friend. I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and, and uh, sharing more of your stories with us. You're fantastic. Well, Chris, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Uh, all the men and women in the armed services all around the country, thank you for your service. And, Chris, we need to get an Oakmont trip. We need to get out to the big course here, maybe this fall after the U.S. Amateur. I'd love that, my friend. You don't have to ask me twice, so let's put that together. Can't wait. <laughs> well, let's, let's, stay, let's stay in touch and get that. We've got the U.S. Amateur at Oakmont this year, then the Open coming back in 2025. So let's see if we can do something like in early October at Oakmont, okay? All right. Sounds good to me, my friend. Stay safe up there, Bob. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Cheers, Chris. Thank you. See you, Bob. That's a great Bob friend. Hey, look, play out at Oakmont with Bob Friend. Are you kidding me? You don't have to ask me twice about that one. Holy cow. What a great day that would be. Hopefully we can make that happen. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Tom Patrick. Hal Sutton and Bob Friend for joining me tonight. Folks, please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And scheduled to join me next week are going to be Damon Hack from the Golf Channel. Really looking forward to having Damon as part of the show again next week. 
Nancy Corsolino, who is one of the most decorated teachers in the LPGA, she'll be making her TNT debut, as will Bob Winskowitz, who is the founder and creator of Squares Golf Shoes. And again, folks, I went after Squares because I thought their shoes were outstanding. And uh, a new partnership with Bob this year, so really looking forward to having him on the show to talk about the technology and how you can get a few more distance from having a better shoe. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites. We are all over the net. You can find us on podcast.co, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Radio.com. If you've got a favorite podcasting site that you like to stream shows online or as an app on your phone so you can take us with you everywhere you go, you're probably going to find us on it. And folks, if you enjoy the show, please do me a favor and go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for their show and their Hot 50 list. When you click on the on the link, right, you go to podcastmagazine.com, you're going to see Hot 50 at the top. If you click on that, you're going to get a little drop down, and then you'll see Hot 50 voting. Just put in the name of the show next on the T and my name, Chris Mascaro. I'd really appreciate your support. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the T, a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.